good to be back again this month. Next month, um, we'll be here um, somewhat permanently. I say somewhat because we thought that our house that we live in now was permanent. Uh, God had other plans. But uh, would appreciate your continued prayer for us, for Judy and I. My wife is the original Green Bay Packer, and she's doing a great job. But she's tired, and I'm tired, and we're all tired. So uh, it's all coming to a head here in one month. We'll be moving in on June 16th into our house here in Webster. And then we're going to be a permanent fixture around here, God willing. And uh, we pray that it is God's will that we be here. And we anticipate a rich blessing of being part of this assembly. Um, And uh, we're just honored to be here, uh, to become one with you all. And for those of you that we don't know, uh, uh, we're going to work real hard to get to know you. Um, For those of you that we know, we're going to ignore you for probably a year. Uh, (laughs) Let's pray. Again, Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that in your word there is power, power to save power to convict, power to rebuke, power to enlighten, power to comfort, power to thrill. We ask, Lord, that you would attend your word today for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have been given this assignment from Colossians 1, verse 19. All the fullness of God dwelled in him. And if you look at the literal Various versions uh, that I have on my shelf or I have access to uh, have added different things, but the literal, <clears throat> the literal interpretation from the original language is because he was well pleased, all the fullness to dwell in him. But the context of this whole chapter that you've been in for months now, I think it's been months. Has it been months? Yes is that it's obvious that Paul is referring to the fullness of God being in Christ, dwelling there, staying there, that he is, in fact, fully God. And remember, uh, last time we were together, we talked a little bit about some of the errors in the church. Wherever two or three are gathered together, um, you know that the Lord is in their presence, but also there's going to be some error in interpretation of the Scriptures, and there's always error. And people tend to be extremists. They tend to go to one side or the other. And, of course, there was the Arian perspective that snuck into the church early, uh, almost uh, shortly after uh, Christ rose from the dead. The Arian perspective believed that Jesus was a man. He was not God. He was a prophet. Um, He uh, had the words of God, but he was not God. He was uh, a good prophet from God. And, of course, you have the genesis of many cults that believe that today. And, and we're praying for one of those cults uh, that's about to celebrate uh, uh, in Palmyra here in just a matter of a few weeks. Uh, then also there's the kenosis theory. The kenosis theory uh, was based upon the text in Philippians chapter 2 that said that he emptied himself 
taking the form of a bondservant. And that kenosis theory or emptying is that he was God, but when he came incarnate as the human substitute, he laid aside his deity. He was no longer God in that incarnate 33 years. And that, of course, is in great error, um, as we said the last time, that Jesus Christ has existed from eternity past and will exist forever because he is God. He's always been God. And his coming to the earth did not sacrifice his deity. The truth is that his deity or his Godhead was veiled. Remember, it was covered over. That's called the crupsis. The crupsis is where we couldn't see the glory that was emanating from Jesus as God because it was veiled in, as he existed in human form. And then there's the subordinationist theory. And, and last time I asked for a quick poll and a bunch of you lied and said you'd never fallen into this. And that was that there's a rank order in God where God the Father is number one, God the, Father, God the Son is number two, and God the Holy Spirit is three. And there's that rank order of things. And uh, nobody raised their hand. Everybody said they'd never felt that way. And, and I confessed I was the only one then. And you made me feel bad. So... I feel bad about that. But it's obvious that given our preoccupation with the 33 years that Christ was on the earth, it's easy for us to fall into that trap, to that thinking. Because the only Jesus that we know is the Jesus that existed on the earth for that brief period of time. And so his period of submission is imprinted in our mind as a permanent status for Jesus. That he's always been number two, or he's always been somewhat inferior to God the Father. Well, this morning I want to introduce two other errors. And you'll say, why are you wasting all this time on error? Well, because it's always good to start out with what it is not saying in our text in Colossians. And then we can talk about what it is saying in our text in Colossians. So there's the Gnostic theory. Anybody ever heard of the Gnostic theory? Okay. Two people, three, all right, wonderful, the Gnostics. And, and, uh, and essentially that is that the belief that uh, Jesus was God, but not really man. You see, what an error-prone uh, uh, people we tend to be. There's the Arians, which said he was man and not really God, and then there's the Gnostics who said he was God in a human shell, but the shell didn't really possess manhood. And I want to introduce a a new uh, theory, and that is called, are you ready for this? Sabellianism. Sabellianism. And that is that Jesus is not a unique personality in the Godhead. So Gnosticism again, and Sabellianism. In essence, in Gnosticism, Jesus could not have taken on real flesh because that would have corrupted his deity. Uh, It was in this mindset that there was no way that humanity and deity could co-reside in Christ without corrupting the deity. And the problem with that is simply that people fail to recognize that the normal state of man is not fallen. The normal state of man is man is created in the image of God. But if the only state of man is a fallen state, then it is true that the fallen state of man couldn't have co-resided in the person of Jesus Christ with deity without corrupting deity. 
And what, again, they failed to recognize was that sin is not inherently connected to the flesh, but was the result of the fall, the fall of man. When man became sinful, he has, for the rest of our experience in history, existed in an abnormal state. Anybody out here feel like you're abnormal? Abnormal. We're abnormal. So they believed that to be holy, we needed to be separated from sin, and therefore we had to deny the body, deny the flesh, and the things of the earth. If you're interested in studying uh, where this started, you can read about uh, the Essenes, which were a a sect of Jews that existed, and they lived somewhat of a self-denial existence. Um, And if you want a good read on that, you can read Edersheim's Life and Times of Messiah. I'm going to talk a little bit about Sabellianism. I promise to race through this because it's 11 o'clock. Sabellianism is also known as modalism or monarchianism. It is said to have originated in the third century with my great, 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 great to the tenth order uncle Al Sibelius. No, in all seriousness, I hope I'm not related, but it could happen. Um, He was a third century priest. And he essentially formed a non-Trinitarian perspective. And that was that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are just variations in the mode of God. And so when we have the incarnate Christ, it was just God in a different mode, in a different form. And, of course, the Council of Nicaea early uh, in the 4th century dealt with that issue and settled on uh, the three separate personalities within the Godhead, the Trinity, as being one of our fundamental distinctives as Christians. We believe that there is, in fact, three personalities in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's always been that way. And it shall always be that way. And we cannot just pluck out of of our experience, uh, the interpretation of who God is. Now, there are some today that even still today practice this, and uh, typically there's in the Pentecostal background, there is a doctrine called oneness or the oneness of God. And if you've ever been into that, they hold that Jesus, being God in the flesh, um, is in fact God in the flesh, but believe that Jesus uh, was simply the incarnate God in a new form. They indirectly reject the concept of a co-existing Jesus and Father and Holy Spirit uh, from eternity past. And uh, the issue here is that they are not far from what is today Unitarianism. Unitarianism, where there is one God and only one God in one person. So Sibelius, Sibelians. We hope that we're not falling or any of you haven't fallen into that trap. But for us to fully understand Colossians 1 and verse 19, that all the fullness of God dwelt in him, we need to understand his separation, his separate nature 
from God the Father. And what I want to proclaim to you this morning is simply this, that salvation is ultimately and quite simply seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is. It's not complicated. It is us seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, New Covenant Christianity is built upon the principles established in Colossians 1, verse 19, that all the fullness dwelt in Him. And this is our theme uh, for today, and I will spend uh, the rest of our time this morning trying to convince you of that, of that principle, of that theme. And again, the last time I was here, I connected um, a slightly different aspect of the similar theme, uh, but our vision of Jesus must incorporate more than the incarnate Jesus. Our understanding of who Jesus is must include Jesus in his pre-existent state, Jesus in his humiliation state, and Jesus, as he is today, in his exalted state. And that's the Jesus that we worship this morning, not simply the Jesus that was here as our substitute. Many professing Christians, well-meaning, well-meaning Christians, may not understand or not grasp the significance of the verse this morning that says all the fullness All the fullness of God dwelt within him. Remember, we said the last time that there is numerical identity with God and Jesus. There's no subordination here. It's not a second perspective or a second class or that Jesus was a a similar essence to God the Father or Jesus had a relationship with God the Father Jesus was equal to God the Father. The vision that we read the last time, and you've seen many times in Isaiah chapter 6, where uh, Isaiah's entire life was changed when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the glory filled the temple. Remember that vision in Isaiah chapter 6. That was Jesus that he saw. Now, Again, wrong, incomplete uh, views. Our Jesus was a missionary sent from God to bring the good news. That's true, but it's insufficient. It's true, but insufficient. Others could say that Jesus was a prophet in the same manner that Moses was a prophet or Elijah was a prophet. And that's true, but insufficient. And the word that came during the episode or the event in the lives of Peter and James and John when they got to see Jesus as he really was, right? When the croupsis occurred, when the veil was removed, and they saw the Shekinah glory emitting from Jesus. They were so taken with that event that they said, that Peter says, this is great. Let's build some tents and tabernacles so we can stay here. And what happened? A voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. In other words, yes, Elijah was a great man of God. Yes, Moses was a great man of God. Jesus is God. 
Listen to him. That's the new covenant, folks. That's the new covenant. Now, I know you're probably tired of seeing these same verses, but I would love to have you turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And some would say that God is always the same. God never changes, so therefore His revelation never changes. So therefore, the revelation that we have in the Old Covenant and the revelation that was given to Moses the prophet is still the revelation that we must submit ourselves to today. And so I want to read to you Roman, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. And this is the verse that I really want to hang into here this morning. Verse 3. He is the radiance is what the English uh, Standard Version says, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. See, that's an arithmetic statement. I know I'm an engineer. I know I had a ridiculous amount of calculus going to school. and I remember very little, nine semesters of that stuff. But... This is an uh, an arithmetic statement. We're talking about identity here. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God. You remember that? You walk out of here today, I want you to think Jesus is God. And this is the final revelation from God. Jesus is the completion of of God's communicating with man. Jesus is God. He is the exact imprint of His nature. But look at that wonderful word. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, I want to speak to the people who are under 18 here, uh, maybe from 2 years old to 17. How many of you have bicycles? Oh, there's only three bicycles in the whole place? Oh, okay, good. Oh, yeah, we have lots of bicycles. All right, now, if you go into the garage where your bicycle is parked at night, and, and you look at the back fender, there's a little red thing, right? What's that red thing called? Ah, I think somebody said a reflector. Okay, what's a reflector do? You see, the definition is inherent to the name. It's a reflector. It reflects light. Now, if you go into the garage at night to see your bicycle to make sure it's still okay, nobody's taken it, but the lights aren't on, what do you see when you look at that reflector? Nothing. That's right. You look at that reflector, and if the lights aren't turned on, you see nothing. Okay. But the beauty of that little reflector is that if you shine light on it, what happens? It gets brilliant. It shines. It looks like it's emitting light, doesn't it? It looks like light's coming forth from it. 
but it is a reflector. You turn that light off, and there's nothing but a little red thing in the dark. You can't even see it. Now, recently, we live on Cape Cod, and uh, I understand that the moon in its trajectory around the earth as it rotates around the earth. Now, pay attention, kids. You're going to be tested on this later. Your moms, being Mother's Day and all, will think that you own this. Um, but recently, in fact, only about four days or five days ago, the moon came the closest as it ever does to the earth in its rotation. And I went out that night uh, with our dog, and I looked up, and the moon was huge. And it was a clear night, and the moon was so bright that I didn't need to turn the lights on. And it was great. And I said, wow, this is almost like daylight. The, the moon is brilliant tonight. But, you know, the moon is like a reflector, isn't it? What happens to the moon when the earth is between the moon and the sun? Does anybody know? Maybe you've got to be in middle school to answer this question. But when the earth goes between the sun and the moon, what happens to the moon? Well, it's an eclipse. The moon gets dark. So the moon's like the reflector on the back of your bicycle. It doesn't emit light at all. It reflects light. Now, what, I, what you've just been through here is a little science class. Sorry about that, but it's the physics of light. And light can either be um, visible from an emitter or visible from a reflector. But there's a significant difference, isn't there? If you think of the moon and the sun, which has more glory? Which has more radiance? The answer is pretty simple. Okay, thank you. The sun. Exodus chapter 34. Let me just read verse 29b through 32. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and beheld the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. But what had happened to Moses was that in the presence of God, basking in the radiance or the effulgence from God, he was shining forth. He was reflecting the glory of God. And all the people said, wow, this is phenomenal. Exodus 34, verse 33. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he commanded And the people of Israel would see the face of Moses. The skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with God. What we have in the Old Covenant 
is glory. It's glorious. It was wonderful. It impacted the entire nation of Israel. When they saw the face of Moses, they were stunned because it shined forth. But that glory was a reflection from God. Now our text for today is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and Hod read that for us. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, what Paul is going to do here is he's going to compare the emitter to the reflector. He's going to compare the radiance of the glory that emitted from Jesus versus the reflectance of glory that was emitting from Jesus are reflecting off the face of Moses. And in verse 18 of chapter 3, we have this wonderful explanation of the new covenant ministry. And he says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one glory to another. Did you get that? When Paul says, we all with unveiled face, well, could he be referring to the new covenant minister of not having a veil over his face? He could be. But I think, moreover, he's referring to the unveiled face of Jesus. And the reason new covenant ministers hold up Jesus with unveiled face is so you can behold his glory. The effulgence, the radiance of his glory that emits from the face of Jesus. Unveiled face, beholding. And this beholding idea, and and, and I wish we had time to develop the idea of beholding. This is a continuous action. This is not something that happens to us once. We see Christ, and then we don't see him again. Now, that is what happened to the apostles in their earthly experience. The three that had the blessed opportunity to see the crucis where the veil was lifted and they saw the effulgence or the radiance shining forth in the Shekinah glory that represented God. They got to see that and it changed their lives. Changed them forever. We get to see the effulgence, the radiance of Jesus on a continual basis. And it must change our lives. This is the promise that was given to Jeremiah in the Old Testament. The prophet had in chapter 31 where God said, there will come a day where I will write my law on their hearts. The Holy Spirit gives us that vision of Christ and writes his law on our hearts. It becomes part of our constitution. It's called being born again, or the theologians say regenerate, where God generates a new heart within us. That's a wonderful experience, and it is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. But in Second Corinthians chapter 3, Uh, To put this better into the context, this verse 18 into the context, look at chapter 3, verse 7. If you have your Bibles, 
And Paul's using some very strong words here because he's making a comparison. He's not, he's not poo-pooing the old covenant, but in comparison with the new. He calls it a ministry of death in chapter 3 and verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? I feel sad for people who hang on to the old and feel that they need the old to be their guide and their life pattern because it had glory but as compared to the new it has so much less glory so much less look at second corinthians 3 and verse 11 for if what was being brought to an end came with glory much more will what is permanent have glory much more much more much more. And, you know, it's very sad, but some people who hang on. I have some, uh, a, a Jewish friend at work, and he's a dear man. And he's faithful to Judaism. And he's dead, spiritually. Because he's hung on. He's hung on to that which had some glory. But as compared to what we have, it's almost no glory. And verse 14 of chapter 3 here, But their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. That's sad, isn't it? We have such a wonderful gift in beholding the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus. And yet our friends and family, so many people we know, see nothing. It's as if we're living in some counter-universe or some alternate life. What we see and what they see. They see nothing. They see no glory. Uh, the, other, the other day, I think I told you we've been having a Bible study in the Gospel of John for six years in our home. And we're up to chapter 12. And um, in chapter 12, uh, John uh, is articulating what took place at the end of the ministry, the public ministry of Christ. You know, chapter 12 precedes what's called the Paschal Discourse, which is where Jesus is, is now in chapter 13, 14, 15. He's just speaking with the disciples, right? He's in the upper room. So, so chapter 12 is the end of the public ministry. And in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John and verse 35, Jesus says to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. 
while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And as if that was the last public statement that Jesus made, and he said to the people that were around him, you have the light for just a little bit longer. Walk in the light. Believe in the light. And you'll become sons of the light. But most, sadly to say, did not. And then the really, really sad verse in this passage in chapter 12 is, is the latter portion of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Does that break your heart? Here he was preaching, uh, not exclusively to uh, his disciples. He was preaching broad and far to the nation of Israel and even some Gentiles. And he pleads with them, while you have the light, believe in the light. But then he hides himself. And the really, really sad thing is that most of our friends don't see the light. They don't see the light. And then reading on in this passage, in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. And then John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And, of course, the context is he saw the glory of Jesus. It's not resting this passage to say that what John's referring to in the context was Jesus who just said, I am the light. While you have the light, believe in the light. And then he says, God blinded their eyes so they could not see. And he says, the vision that Isaiah saw was Jesus. Jesus. So I'd ask this morning if there are any people here that don't see the light. If your heart has been hardened... I'm sorry for you. And I would long to talk to you and others would long to talk to you and talk to you about the light because there's still time. And God can give you the ability to see the light just like he took a stone-hard heart and gave me the ability 40 years ago. I pray that for you this morning that you may behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is all about. That you might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, what happens to us as we behold the glory? What happens to us? Calvin said that the design of the gospel is that the image of God, which had been defaced by sin, may be repaired within us. Think about it. Have you ever thought about the garden? Have you ever thought about what it must have been like to be Adam before he fell in sin? 
and had the opportunity on a daily basis to do what? Walk alongside of God and communicate and converse about things, about the animals. God says, I'm going to show you a new animal today, Adam, and they would talk about it. Or God would say, I want to show you how to cultivate the fruit of all of the trees that I want you to eat from. And they would have communication on a daily basis. It was, no, it was no special event. You didn't have to go into a ceremony. They just walked and talked together. Salvation is, in fact, restoring us to the state of the original man. Where we can have that kind of communication, that kind of friendship with a holy God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That's a wonderful thing, Yes. Philip Hughes said this, the process, this process of transformation into the image of God is none other than the restoration of the image of God that was ours originally in the garden. Reminds me of that epistle of John in chapter 3 and verse, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 where he says, when he is manifested, we shall be like him. I don't know about you, but that's sort of stunning when I think about it. You know, my soul does cleave to the dust still. And yet when, when God takes me to glory and I see him, I am told here that I shall be like him. And that's not a braggadocio statement. Bob Collier is now like Jesus. That's a stunning thought, isn't it? That's a stunning thought. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Worship, study, love, trust, wait on the Lord. The glory is worth it. The idea of beholding is an ongoing activity, an ongoing trust, an ongoing study, an ongoing love, an ongoing investigation. We never tire of it. As Christians, if you tire of it as Christians, you have some kind of an ailment that needs to be looked at. And you need to take that to the Lord. Sanctification is simply this, the process of our being conformed to the image of God. Like the original man. We're not, I'm not a Mormon, I'm not saying we become gods. But we are being transformed to be like we were when we were first created in the image of God. And the image of God will be reflected in us. And people will see in us the reflection of God. We won't become gods where we become emitters of glory. But we should reflect the glory of God. And glorification, when we think about this now, as we get older... We need to think about what glorification is all about, but it's justification and sanctification being complete in one, for the image is then finally impressed upon the redeemed in an unobscured fullness that will see God. Uh, that is a thrilling concept for me. Having studied this, having looked at it, I am so anticipating being able to see God without the fetters of sin. 
without the earth tugging on me. I get to see God in an unobscured fullness. Calvin again said, The progress of this restoration is continuous through the whole of life because it is little by little that God causes His glory to shine forth in us. Isn't that a wonderful statement? Little by little. Little by little. So, ministers of the new covenant will reflect the radiance of Christ in changed lives. And you are all ministers of the new covenant. Did you know that? You are all evangelists. Because as you go into this world, there's nothing but darkness. And what people need to see from us is the reflection that the people of Israel saw in Moses' face. As he met with God, he reflected that radiance. People need to see that in us. Remember, again, in 2 Peter verse 1, uh, verses 5 through 8, uh, Peter is talking in that passage about how seeing the glory of Christ changed his life. Changed his life. May we all have that same vision in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, as we close, the apostle in chapter 4 says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. If we're running on our own steam, we will lose heart. There are times where we get dry, like me right now, um, where we lose heart. But as we think about this ministry that's been given to us, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And then in verse 6 of chapter 4, and I'll close with this. this marvelous statement for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ amen let's pray thank you father for your word Lord, I thank you this morning that your word is faithful and true. I pray that you would grant to all of us insight that we might see the glory that is before us in Christ, that we might truly experience that freedom and the hope of glory. Thank you again, Lord, for your sustaining power. Thank you for keeping all of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. If you could turn over to number 275 in your hymnal. 275. And I would ask you to stand together as we close with how firm a foundation 
is laid for our faith in this excellent word. Praise God. 